and welcome to the Lancet Digital Health podcast. I'm Diana Samuel, the senior editor of the journal. Today, we are going to be talking about a new correspondence article published in the journal, which describes a real-time publicly available dashboard that tracks all clinical trials investigating treatments for the current coronavirus pandemic. The dashboard collates information from various clinical trial registries and displays them on an interactive platform. Joining me now to discuss this further is an author of the paper, Dr. Louis Dron. Louis is a director of Real World Analytics for Cytel, based in Vancouver, Canada. He is also a researcher at McMaster University in Ontario, Canada, and is affiliated with the Department of Health Research Methodology, Evidence and Impact. He has a broad spectrum of research interests, including clinical trial designs, real world evidence and health technology applications. So welcome, Louis. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Diana. So to kick off, please tell our audience about your correspondence article. Sure. So our correspondence piece is a brief description of our interactive website, which is currently tracking COVID-19 interventional clinical trials. Just to give a quick sense of what the trial website is and where it's coming from, we're taking registry data from eight international clinical trial registers, and these you know, are covering a broad variety of jurisdictions. And, and today we're, we're capturing registered clinical trials from all major continents, with the notable exception of Antarctica. From all these different data sources, we're converting the data into a standardized format. So for example, one website may be describing interventions as interventions, one may be describing them as IMP products. But we're trying to standardize all of these different criteria from the data sources, the trial design components, the plan sample size, the end of the execution criteria. From all of that data, we undertake a sort of a, a semi-automated review where we're trying to integrate uh, machine learning processes such as natural language processing to simplify the data extraction process. And it's finally subjected to a manual review by two independent reviewers here. And that's to get rid of things like making sure the trade names and chemical names are interchangeable. Researchers will put up details in different ways. We're just trying to make sure that this can all be synthesized in a, in a manageable way. We then have the data set looked over for duplication of entries. So for example, a number of large international files will be registered multiple times on different registries. So we want to ensure that we're not double counting research. And, and the sort of process, just if anyone has done a systematic review, is actually fairly similar for this. Instead of sort of peer-reviewed publications and the quality is there, our data sources just registered trials. The overall sort of, you know, the, the checking and the processes are, are, are fairly comparable. So once we've got all of that data, we feed it into our website application. And this is kind of a way for us to visualize and break down the data set because it is fairly large at the moment. Our current date, this is up to just about 590 registered trials. So with this sort of data synthesis, you're able to select characteristics which might be relevant to a research question you have. So for example, you may be interested in trials for a specific region of the world and you're able to filter by countries the number of clinical trials which they have there. You might, on the other hand, be interested in a specific patient characteristic. You might be interested in clinical trials, looking at participants in an outpatient setting here. On the other hand, you may be interested in trials looking at patients who are mechanically ventilated in intensive care. So you're able to filter by these and also by the treatments which are being registered for those different contexts. You may or may not be interested in the recruitment status, whether you want to look at only trials which are actively recruiting, if that's your purpose 
or whether you're also interested in specific design features such as randomized or non-randomized data. So you can filter through all of those and at the end you're able to download all of the trial entries which have been tagged in that way and there are automatic links to the original data sources in case there's something you want to check into in a bit more detail. Fantastic, that's a great summary and it's uh, intriguing to hear that the approach you've taken is kind of akin to a systematic review approach. That's an interesting analogy. So while you were in the process of sourcing and consolidating all of this information, did you notice any interesting trends in the underlying data? Yeah, I think a few things have come out and, and some of these are in some ways what people are sort of expecting and seeing, but it's interesting to put the numbers to them. And some other components are things that we didn't quite expect. I think at the moment in the sort of in the clinical trial space for this disease, there's a lot of attention and shift towards this whole concept about the sort of overlap or duplication of research efforts. And, and I think that one, one interesting case study of this is the use of either hydroxychloroquine or, or chloroquine. And so just, just by way of context here, and as of today's date when we're having this discussion, there's, there's 115 unique clinical trials investigating either hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine. I'll, I'll, I'll simplify it for further discussion just as hydroxychloroquine, understanding there are some differences here. And so, you know, understandably of that 115, some of these are going to be in different patient contexts. Some of these are going to be for preventative prophylaxis for healthcare work. Some of these are going to be in hospitalized patients. And then there's also some further breakdown here in terms of, you know, not all of these trials are necessarily providing it uh, at the same dose, at the same sort of schedule of administration. So there are some differences here over that 115. But just by sort of counterpoint of illustration, if every of those trials manages to meet its recruitment target, there's going to be trial data on 195,000 individuals who've received that treatment. And, and the sort of pace of which in this, you know, to keep focusing on hydroxychloroquine here, the sort of pace of registered trials is also pretty fascinating to investigate here. So from April 1st until today, which is just towards the tail end of April, there's been over half of all of the trials in that space have been registered. By way of contrast, from February 2nd all the way through to mid-March, um, there was only 25 registered trials in that treatment. So from a variety of different sources and pressures, and this is from the clinical literature, this is from news reporting, and in some cases, political figures discussing this treatment, there has been a dramatic increase in that treatment in particular. And, and this is actually slightly variable between countries. So just by way of a specific example, We've currently got 77 trials which we recognize as being ongoing or, or planned in, in the United States. Um, and 32%, so just shy of a third of all of the trials in the US are, as one part of their treatment arms at the very least, investigating hydroxychloroquine. And I think the geography is also a really interesting angle to all of this. So, so we've definitely noticed a number of trends here. So the pace at which clinical trials are being registered in some ways is resembling the reported new case numbers. So by way of example, if we stick with the United States to begin with, there, there were four registered trials at the very beginning of March, and in, in, including the United States. By the sort of start of April, that had increased to 26. And then in the first two weeks of April, from 26, it increased all the way up to 77. So this is a very, very substantial increase in trial activity in the United States. To draw a parallel to a country which has observed a reduction in the reported number of cases. China's a really good example here. So if we're thinking back to the US, there was almost a tripling of registered trials across the first half of April in the United States. 
In China, which has a very large number of registered clinical trials, there were only nine new ones added over that same time period. So there's definitely a sort of potential for parallels of the disease infection alongside the trial efforts here. And then another notable fact, as you're looking at the map that sort of becomes fairly striking, is regional variability in trial flights in certain regions of the world. So to focus in on South Asia and Africa, this is the entire continent of Africa and the South Asian subcontinent here. These are regions of the world with a population of about 3 billion people. The number of cases there as of today's date and recording is around 50,000 and is increasing. Of the 591 trials which we've identified so far, only 17 are being investigated across these two entire regions. There's a number of different ways you could sort of interpret that, you know. Is this a lack of representation on the registries because of language barriers? You know, if there are trial registries in non-English language, which we don't have local capacity to translate, they're unable to come to our registry. Is this because these regions, again, as of mid-April, comparatively less affected in the terms of numbers of cases and, and mortality relative to some other regions? So, so it's, it's very hard to say from the data we have so far, but as the international focus is, is becoming more apparent in these regions, I think this would be really fascinating to sort of understand how that may or may not be represented over the next coming months in terms of clinical trial activity. Mm, that's, that's interesting. Yes, we're certainly hearing a lot of discussion regarding hydroxychloroquine um, or chloroquine, but it's also interesting to hear how trial registration within countries seems to correlate with the number of new COVID-19 cases in those countries. Um, and that, that there seem to be geographic regions where substantially fewer trials have been registered. Uh, but this is clearly quite a dynamic situation and the level of activity in those regions may well change soon, uh, which would be reflected in the dashboard. So that's, that's really interesting. So if we talk specifically now about health policy, which, which is a, another important aspect of the pandemic, in what ways do you envision researchers, clinicians and policymakers can utilise this tool to tackle the pandemic and make more informed decisions? And could it support more coordinated efforts to search for treatments? Yeah, that's, that's definitely that's a really good question. It's, it's, it's been a really big sort of driving force behind the actual development of this tool in the first place. You know, we've had discussions with a number of groups and these are you know everywhere from traditional academia through, through to industry through to not-for-profit global health organizations and I think there has been challenges by many groups in terms of coordination outside of their traditional networks of researchers that they have and, and I think you know a really interesting point that's come up from this entire pandemic has been people are really keen to collaborate wherever they can right p people are very interested in getting engaged in these activities. They're interested in getting the most amount of data sharing that they can have going on. And so one of the better selling points of the tool is the ability to sort of have this registered trial data where people can get in touch with other groups. So you could say, for example, you know, once you've done your filtering and you're like, hey, I'm really interested in this specific patient context and these treatments. Many of the trial registries have contact details from the groups which got it registered there. So, and, and many of these provide emails as well. So the ability to sort of reach out and be like, hey, look, these people are working on something similar to us or something dissimilar to us, but we think we could possibly help provide some information here. It's really something that we've been keen to sort of extol as a virtue of the platform as it currently stands. Mm. 
that's great to hear, especially in a time like this, that you've helped develop something that can can help bring people together and encourage more collaborative effort to help fight the pandemic uh, and also discover points for, for further clinical study. So onto something a little bit different. As you know, the public are being bombarded with information about the current pandemic, some of which is not scientifically accurate or else is, is a bit premature. So from a public health standpoint, what role do you think this dashboard has in fighting this so-called infodemic and ensuring accurate and timely dissemination of evidence-based information regarding the efficacy and safety of potential coronavirus treatments? It's, it's a really good question and it's, um, it's certainly a challenge I, I feel that's felt across the landscape. So, so this sort of infodemic touches on all sorts of areas of health research and I think part of that is because there's a, a bit of a tension between, you know, a group who has um, some interesting results which could genuinely be profoundly impactful and they want to communicate this in a way or at a speed or through a medium um, which is not necessarily aligned with the sort of traditional peer review avenues here. And then in contrast to that, you know, I think you, you touched on there that the, the role that sort of peer review has in sort of quality and appraisal and critical review ahead of results being um, coming out. And I think, you know, people's interests in, in, in the disease topic who are maybe not traditionally part of the research ecosystem. So a number of people are, are reading reports on, say, Twitter and social media. News aggregators are reporting, which were previously perhaps focused less on healthcare research and policy here, disseminate results. And, and these, in some cases, are, you know, remarkable mechanisms to communicate from. I think there's been some positive stories there too, but balancing that against sensationalism, um, what the motives are for that are, are very challenging to unpick and it's not to criticize individuals that would take that approach but how all of this is balanced up is is the real chance and that feeds directly into our website here so from our perspective what, what we're trying to develop here is a mechanism to sort of record and report and then eventually maybe later on down the road synthesize the data as it becomes available but but we're subject to these exact same challenges you know in terms of if we're reporting on trials which have published data rather than just registered data. Does it make sense for us to include preprint in this? Or should we wait for peer-reviewed publications and potentially be a little bit behind in terms of where the evidence is? As a trial, you know, to, to meet a, a middle road here, does it make sense to integrate the preprint and other media sources that have some kind of mechanism and or warning to say this hasn't been peer-reviewed? That's also then got to be balanced up against the whole, you know, does, does anyone actually read that and, and read it in a different manner than they would have done otherwise? It's, it's a really interesting point. Our, our hope is that through the sort of the, the transparent reporting of the trial features, which relate to quality to some degree or another in relation to blinding, randomization, intended sample size, you're able to sort of get an understanding of which studies may or may not be impactful. Um, and again, this is perhaps more tailored towards uh, clinical researchers, but I think the public as a whole would understand, you know, a study of several thousand patients in a context is likely to be of higher quality than that of 10 or so patients as in some other cases. And I think when we get towards the point where we've got sufficient published trial data, whichever mechanism that's going to end up being here, tools such as meta-analysis, when you're trying to pull together results from a number of different studies and try and see what the overall effect is. It's actually a really powerful visual way and statistical way to demonstrate the weights of these studies. For example, in that context, the uncertainty associated with a small trial and the results it has 
is sort of very visually obvious when you look at the traditional output, such as a forest plot, relative to a larger trial with a very low degree of heterogeneity in the outcome which we're studying. So I'm, I'm not sure we have all the answers to that one necessarily yet, but we're hoping this sort of transparent reporting approach and eventually when we get to an analytical stage will we'll, we'll help minimise that. Yeah, that's that's interesting and it, it nicely harks back to your point about the, the synthesis and collation of the trial data into this dashboard kind of being analogous to the, the process for a systematic review. So finally, what questions do you feel remain unanswered and what should be the priorities for future research in this area? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a real challenge. There's, there's a large number which we could uh, go through here, but just, just one immediate one that we've been working on recently is actually um, outcomes reporting. So both in terms of um, when we're thinking towards the analysis, but even just the recording of data here, how many outcomes can you record and how can you substratify these? And I think this has become a real topic, both in terms of trying to synthesize all this data, but even planning the trials in the first place. Ideally, you want to have outcomes which are very well defined and are comparable to one another so you can make an assessment of whether studies are similar. I think one of the things is, you know, given the pace of, of this outbreak, there's been a sort of shift over time in terms of what outcomes people are understanding is important. And I think what we're really trying to think is unanswered at the moment is how can you balance the fact that, you know, many of these are both um, clinically meaningful across geographies so that there's comparability there too. How can you sort of consolidate that information together without sort of losing critical non-clinical data such as, you know, laboratory measurements, spirometry measurements. And I think, you know, those are getting some increasing attention now over time as we've got sort of prognostic and predictive factors which are being identified here. I, I think maybe to the point that we've touched on before here to do with the evidence synthesis is actually a broader question. How, how representative are the clinical trials which we have registered here today um, as the pandemic evolves? You know, a, a number of these trials may never actually enroll a single patient. You know, we're currently capturing those which are planning to recruit imminently and update that when we can. But it is possible and indeed likely that a number of those won't enrol patients. Whether this is due to the fact that groups are starting to collaborate and integrate their research efforts to one another, or, or whether there's profound changes in the, the disease dynamics or the understanding of which treatments may or may not be effective, um, are definitely important features which are going to feed into that. But that's going to be a real key thing for us to watch. The trials sort of are evolving here. And then I think in terms of the way trials are conducted, and I think we've touched on this briefly, and this is an emerging discussion here, there's definitely, I think, a re-highlighting of the importance of these large, high-impact clinical trials with multiple arms able to answer multiple research questions. And in some of these cases, these studies are being explicitly called out. So in the UK, for example, the chief scientific and medical officers have actually recommended a number of these trials to be high priority for patients to come into. And, and some of these are developing pretty interesting design features to answer multiple research questions. So there's this broader concept known as master protocols. And these are trial designs where you're sort of integrating multiple research questions, the ability to add or remove treatments in certain cases, and the ability to break down your disease into a unified protocol to, to improve recruitment rates and integration of other groups has really been remarkable. There's actually a handful of these already set up. The, the ability of these designs and statistical methods where you can sort of have early stopping rules to be reactive to the evidence as it comes out, whether you've got some capacity in there to adjust your sample size dynamically 
whilst retaining all of the good statistical properties and sort of good epidemiological practices um, has been really, really important. But up, up, up until this point in, in the sort of trial history, those trials hadn't been particularly mainstream. And now there are several of them out and the, and the WHO large platform trial that they have going on is, is indeed a really good example of that. And um, so that will be interesting to see how those trial results come out in practice, how these types of methods and trials work when they're really at a huge, the, the profile of these, uh, of, of these studies is, is larger than it ever has been before. So watching how that space develops and whether that influences on our trial tracker, you know, you have a reduction in smaller number of trials remains to be seen, but I, I think that's a really fascinating subtopic of uh, what, what's coming out of this uh, pandemic. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Louis. It was really great to hear about some of the interesting trends you've already seen emerge from the data and your take on the ways in which various stakeholders could benefit from this tool. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. You can read Dr. Louis Dron's paper online now at The Lancet Digital Health. Thank you for listening.